Welcome to the AI and Enterprise podcast, presented by the Laboratory for Innovation Science at Harvard. This podcast aims to provide executives and senior management with an enterprise-focused forum for understanding artificial intelligence. Drawing on our lab's extensive experience over the past decade, running programs that develop algorithm and AI-based solutions with partners across industries, as well as subject matter expertise from Harvard Business School faculty and partners, each monthly installment will delve into the strategies that enterprises need to successfully integrate AI solutions. And now, here is the moderator for today's session, Jin Paik, General Director of Laboratory for Innovation Science at Harvard. All right, welcome everybody to another session of AI and the Enterprise. Happy to be here with you again. Slightly odd time for us. We usually do this around lunchtime, uh, those of us on the East Coast, but we have a special guest from Down Under with Jesse Arundel. So we're excited to do this. Before we get started, I'm just going to make a couple of announcements here. Wednesday, May 12th, we are going to be back at our usual time, 11 a.m. Eastern, and this is going to be with Anand Rao from PricewaterhouseCooper, and he is the Global Artificial Intelligence Lead. So join us for that. Uh, again, my name is Jim Paik. I'm the host today for our AI in the Enterprise series. We've been running this virtual since last March, and it's been great. And we provide a variety of perspectives, particularly from larger enterprises to come and talk about different techniques and adoption, different innovation practices, and also what is happening with AI and other emerging tech as well to give you a slice of the good things that come along with that. A lot of this leads into some of the great research that we get to do here at the lab. Commonwealth Bank has been a good partner. We've done a case on them that should be coming out here pretty soon in the summer. And also I've had some good chats about doing some research with them, which we're very much looking forward to. With that said, let me introduce our guests for today. Jesse Rundell. Jesse is the head of emerging technology team at Commonwealth Bank of Australia. He is responsible for running a diverse portfolio of disruptive and transformative innovation activities. Their focus is on AI, ragtech, 5G, quantum computing, and DLT. Jesse also leads efforts in scaling the internal crowdsourcing program at Commonwealth, which is near and dear to my heart because that's where my background is in crowdsourcing, and also contributes quite a bit to long-term technology and operations strategy. With that said, I'll turn it over to Jesse. Also, Jesse has one of the best hairdos of any person that I've met from down under, so we're happy to have him. Jesse, welcome. Thank you for having me, and everybody, thank you for joining me in your afternoons, uh, or for everybody from the land down under, thanks for waking up so early and joining me. Epic. I think for this afternoon's session, what I really wanted to do is walk you through a bit about the Commonwealth Bank. I'm sure some of you on the call have never heard of who we are or, or what we do. I think then would love to take you through kind of an overview of how my team works, what our purpose is inside the bank, how we frame our portfolio, what our process is and what our operating model is, because I think it's slightly unique and a key part of the reason why we can drive so much innovation into the organization before actually talking through a range of examples and kind of showcase or flagship initiatives that I hope can give a flavor or a sense of the kind of work that we get to drive inside the bank. What I hope will be interesting, useful, and help spark some thought within your own organizations or, or alternatively in, in your respective research. So what I would say is 
please don't be shy. If you have questions towards the end, would love to hear them both within the chat or, or I don't know if we open it up, but I'm really, really keen to not be on the soapbox for too long and to really get stuck into questions and thoughts on your mind as we walk through the content and the presentation. So for those of you who have never heard of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, we are Australia's largest and leading provider of integrated financial services across retail banking, business banking, institutional banking, and share trading. And our purpose as an organization is to improve the financial well-being of the customers and the communities that we exist to serve. As an organization, we have been established in the kind of early 1900s. And since then, we've really grown quite extensively to effectively bank 17 million Australians through really a, quite an impressive team of 48,000 people down under that work from over a thousand locations. We actually are quite an international bank as well, despite being geographically based in Australia. We have presence in New Zealand, Indonesia, America, in India, and then lastly, all through Europe and the UK too. Obviously, our core market is Australia, and we've really been focused over the last 12 to 18 months in really effectively focusing on kind of our core franchises, which really solely focused on retail banking and business banking. And for us, what that means is that we have the opportunity and the honor of commanding really strong market share in everyday banking transaction and savings account products, all the way through to kind of more traditional lending products like credit cards, home buying. And even I think it's been quite exciting recently, the announcements around some of our plays around, you know, the future of consumer finance and buy now, pay later has been really, really interesting. And I think quite an exciting new suite of products that we'll get to launch over the coming years. That being said, you know, if I reflect back on the success of the organization and the really core of the bank, our competitive advantage as an organization has always been driven by technology. And what I think is really exciting about that is that it gives teams like mine the ability and really the environment to allow us to experiment and to drive new technology, new innovation into the organization at scale. So we've always been very, very proud of having one of the world's best digital banking apps, but also then having a really strong team of technologists and operations staff who help process and run the bank behind the scenes, behind that kind of amazing digital experience. And so for us, where we sit as a team and, and as a function, uh, we actually sit within Enterprise Services, which is the technology and operations division of the Commonwealth Bank. And we sit within a newly formed division actually called the Office of the CIO for Technology. And our team's purpose is to help accelerate the bank or the Commonwealth Bank Group's adoption of new and emerging technologies. And the way that we do that fundamentally, I think first is having the ability to go out and identify and really deeply understand new and emerging technology that is being built, developed, researched, designed outside of the organization. So a key part of our team's value prop is really being able to have not only a real long-term strategic view of where technology is heading by keeping abreast of the latest trends and you know, the latest technology that's been cooked up in hopefully you know, startup garages or places like Harvard all over the world, keeping abreast of that, but then also having the nous to actually be able to bring that back into the organization is really the magic. So saying, 
will have one foot outside of the organization working with, you know, some of the world's largest technology partners, academics, startups, VCs, you know, community associations for technology, and then being able to almost play that matchmaker role to problems, opportunities, certain domains and areas of interest, the bank internally is really, really part of our team's core value proposition. I think then once you find that match between technology and kind of interesting, cool new approach or technique to doing things, and then the right people internally is then the ability to really design, we call them innovation initiatives, but effectively projects that allow us to either build, validate, or literally test out that piece of technology, whatever it is, and apply it to a problem that actually matters inside the organization. So the, you know, the experiment isn't just done in a glass jar, which allows us to really gain really good intelligence and learning about technology, how it works, what it could do for us. And then ideally what we do is work to, you know, essentially attempt to scale the use of that technology inside the bank and inside the organization. So I think for us, we always reflect on these three things is to say, how do we keep ourselves across the latest and greatest in technology? How do we then really effectively design and deliver innovation initiatives at scale? And then how do we ensure that we keep building that ecosystem both internally and externally, which allows us to have the space, but also the know-how and the knowledge of how to make the magic that we do. As you're kind of co-creating this with members, different you know silos at the bank and so forth, are you guys the ones who are kind of taking a look at what things might excite and then going to the various people at the bank and saying, hey, would you want to do this? Or are they at this point bringing it to you, understanding that this is a fairly new initiative? How are you kind of doing this operationally in terms of how do we get from idea to actually piloting something that's going to be a product? Is it driven by, you know, external resources that you see or is it driven internally as it's brought to you? It's actually a bit of both. What's quite interesting, I always reflect on it, is us having good knowledge and understanding of novel technologies outside of the organization and startups and, you know, what is being developed and Ideally, us helping to co-create new services from our big technology partners. Some of our executives will kind of have an interest naturally in kind of certain technologies or, or startups that they see and engage us to help them understand how we could potentially use it. But also what they come to us, which is actually a lot of fun, is problems, challenges, opportunities that they're facing within their business. And what they do is actually give us the space and the access and the trust to actually be able to go help them solve that problem with things that we'll find or things that we'll see. So giving us literally just the headspace, but also the intel to show them or to allow us to show them how they could do things differently if they used new technology in a smart way. One of the most kind of interesting things, I think, is as a team, we've existed in probably many incarnations for close to seven or eight years. And I think what is quite interesting is that if we look back, and it's one of my favorite things is going for kind of the walk down memory lane of all the projects that we've helped support or, or fund or work on is just that exact question. It's like, how do you actually find the things that you have done? And it is, sometimes it's organic, sometimes it's inorganic, regardless of you know, even looking back, preparing for this morning's presentation, you know, the team would look at things like mobile, cloud, big data six or seven years ago as these meta trends. And some were guided by the CIO at the time and others were not and were found by the team and have led to really, really incredible, amazing things. So I think we always reflect on that blend between 
organic and inorganic kind of idea generation. And so kind of as a team, the way that we think about ourselves, we really operate like a business inside the bank. And so we always think about kind of our world within the lens of almost five products that we have for the organization. The first we call experiments, and these are where we will drive and run essentially projects or initiatives where we'll either build new software, new technology, or algorithms ourselves, or alternatively, we will partner directly with our technology partners or with startups to actually bring in and validate third-party software algorithms or, or technology inside the bank's environment. The second thing is actually then investments. So as a team, we've actually made several kind of long-term strategic investments for the bank in emerging technologies that we believe will have a disruptive or transformative impact to the bank when they come online or when they scale. And so what we've actually been able to do is, is with kind of you know, partners like R3, you know, the Global Blockchain Consortia, and even a quantum kind of startup I'll talk about later, we've actually been able to secure access to that technology for the bank well ahead of all of our peers. And also when that technology matures, we also have kind of exclusive rights of it for a period, which means that we can not only start to learn about it now and deeply understand its use and what its applicability is to the organization, but also as it matures, we can grow with it. At the same time, we also really enjoy just helping fund other interesting, innovative pieces of work inside the organization that need to be done that happen in each of our kind of platforms or domains across enterprise services, which I always think is amazing seeing the new ideas that that people come up with and and ideally helping to sponsor or support those come to life inside the bank is something I always find to be a lot of fun. I think the third thing is then kind of this idea of like strategic initiatives, which is to say that, you know, we can build new things, we can test things, we can fund things, invest in things. We also get engaged to help with strategy. And whether that be the bank's technology strategy, whether that be business unit strategies or payment strategies, I think what is exciting about that is that we're actually able to help shape and influence through our team's work and the way that we think the actual direction of investment and kind of broad scale activity all across the bank as we get engaged on different papers and and different presentations and schools of thought over the kind of three year roadmaps that run the organization. These last two things I'm incredibly passionate about, you know, this idea of being able to build ecosystems. So going out and sponsoring and supporting community associations and events that help build not only the bank's kind of technology and innovation halo, but then also help throw our support behind emerging technology industries right here in Australia. And a good example of that is we recently sponsored the RegTech Association's annual event where we sponsored the innovation stream and were able to do some really cool events and activities with several members of the community. And as Jin kind of touched on earlier, and kind of not the intent of today's presentation, but again, something that's certainly near and dear to my heart is kind of our open innovation practice. So we have a kind of internal crowdsourcing platform called Unleashing Innovation that we use to ourselves as a team, crowdsource ideas, but then also enable all of our other business units inside the organization to actually be able to run continuous improvement and continuous innovation programs that allows them to generate ideas from their staff, whether they be on the front line, whether they be in head office, it, you know, the platform really cuts through any kind of you know, organizational complexity because kind of doesn't matter who you are or what you do or where you work. You know, the core value of the platform is it allows us to get ideas from everybody and then work to implement those all, all across the organization. So as a team, you know, again, recap, purpose is all about accelerating the bank's adoption of new and emerging technologies, 
And if this is our product set back to the organization, our process has really been built on there's you know, some great work undergoing or underway with the International Standards Organization under ISO 56002, which is actually looking to standardize the innovation management process and to categorize innovation as a business management system. And this is something I'm really, really passionate about in that I think the role of innovation deserves to be professionalized inside large enterprises. And so the intent of the work with Standards Australia here locally, but also with ISO is to say that we can actually standardize innovation. We can treat it as this organic business management system that exists that you can improve, you can monitor, you can scaffold. But what that means is that it doesn't take away any of the creativity or kind of the novel approaches that you would use actually in kind of production or in practice to do things, but really is to say, let's give the organization a really clear set of steps, set of templates and tools that enable us to articulate what we are doing back to the organization to effectively be able to really transparently monitor what we do and, and what we get up to. And so I won't spend too long on this, but I think regardless of those five products that I talked about earlier, that we kind of offer the organization as a team, you know, the process remains the same for each. And I think us being able to say really clear purpose, mission and intent, really clear product set, really clear process means that we are able to apply our school of thought and our thinking to almost any problem inside the bank and enables us to look at almost any technology or any kind of meta trends that we can have or we can think of or we can identify inside the organization. So we aren't fixated on certain technology focus areas. We're not going to fixate on certain trends or things we're seeing out in the market, but we actually give ourselves complete flexibility to find and identify new and emerging tech the bank wants or the bank needs to help solve its problems today through the way that we are set up and that we are organized. So I think what that means is for us, again, we're really privileged to be able to work with some amazing people, some amazing partners particularly kind of our technologists and, you know, the large scale kind of infrastructure platform and, and services teams that we work with, and venture capitalists and academia, both internationally with you and the amazing people at Harvard, but also here domestically and locally. And lastly, then, you know, the startups and scale-ups that we work with all over the world. But I think I've touched on kind of who we work with before. So I thought I'd give some examples of some kind of initiatives that we've worked on over the last 18 to 24 months that we are publicly allowed to talk about. There's certainly a lot that's kind of kept in the portfolio or kind of in the kit bag that we can't bring out. But I thought I'd touch on these because I think they give a really good flavor of not only the depth of what we do, the different approaches, the different techniques and, and kind of tactics we use, but also the different time horizons at which we operate and which we think about new and emerging tech inside the bank and the way we think about innovation internally. Jesse, before uh, we move on, we just have some questions on the process sure. here. This one's from Leonardo. How long does it take to get through the entire process in general? It depends. So we track and monitor, you know, progress through our kind of funnel and, and all initiatives get kind of rigorously measured. I think what we find is that typically the portfolio cycles every 120 to 150 days, and that okay. will be end to end for probably more complex things. Other things actually are where we have complete control and are able to do things internally a lot faster. But I think what is quite interesting is that every single initiative is unique. 
problems that they're trying to solve, the data that we need, the access that we need to systems internally, the engineering or kind of like the AI data scientist teams that we'll bring together to work right. on our projects, all therefore have different kind of time constraints and, and challenges. And we got another one here from uh, Mr. John Healy. This is around metrics. What percent of the initiatives are push versus pull? Do you capture things like that? It's not something we've actually measured in the past, but we're going to start after today. So when we come back next time, we can tell you, John. But I think probably in my mind, I reckon we'd have probably 70-30 of push and pull. And I think that we'll touch on with some of these examples, like the, again, that ability to know and understand what's happening externally and then know the problems and opportunities internally means that you can kind of bring things together in a really creative way, which is really, really fun, but also means that we spend a lot of time pushing ideas and new tech into the org. So I think one of the initiatives that we've recently wrapped up that has been a lot of fun building is called our IT risk stability score. So this is a machine learning model that ingests all of the IT operations data and service management data across the bank and what we're able to do with that model is really predict the likelihood of any of our critical systems that are tier zero or tier one failing in the next 30 days or experiencing a P1 or a customer impacting incident. And so what we're able to then do with that model and with that product that we have built is then really give all of our service managers a really proactive forward-looking view of the risk that kind of is inherent within their technology or within the systems they help support. Then also all the corresponding features or, or factors as to why we believe the system will potentially suffer a P1, which means that they can start to get on top of their systems, their services, ideally before they fail. So we can ensure that we're supporting and living up to our ideals of being an always available bank. And so I think what is really, really cool about that project is that what we've been able to do is actually apply kind of AI or machine learning in a really unique way. Because I think a lot of our organization's focus has been on the application of artificial intelligence for kind of customer-facing activities and initiatives. I think, you know, teams like our chief analytics office has done some amazing work with our customer engagement engine, which has allowed us to orchestrate all customer communications across all of our channels at scale every single day within the bank. But for us, being able to look at enterprise domains inside the organization and being able to say, okay, they actually have these really rich, unique data sets and we have a lot of data as it pertains to these domains. How do we actually start to kind of creatively use this data in a way that's never been done before and we can't find any external products that do anything like it, build the models ourselves and then use them inside the organization to ideally flip or change the domains that we're looking at from being largely reactive to being proactive and forward-looking based on data. So even though service management is the example for the IT risk stability score, there's other domains that we're working on at the moment, like project management, like cybersecurity, that are all back office and very behind the scenes, but really being able to kind of put AI and really, really powerful kind of data science into the hands of our teams that run the bank, I think is really just as important as being able to use AI to help our customers either improve their financial well-being or to manage their banking services. So I think you know, this idea of kind of building these AI products, what was really, really interesting kind of as I was reading, competing in the age of AI, was that the framework and the model was 
completely yeah, spot on. It was identical to the way that we think about building these products. Internally, what is quite interesting as well is I think the ad, I guess the really cool, interesting thing we've kind of learned in practice is that there's also magic in creativity and being able to know and understand when you have the factory line set up, when you have you know your data that's readily accessible, when you have the right people and the right capabilities to actually bring this data together and apply data science and kind of you know the magic of data engineering to it it's actually then having the creativity to know where to apply it and then take that directly to the business to say hey with all this amazing data here we think we can do something with it where we could predict the likelihood of x or we could help you you know risk weight and score all these different things inside the bank would that help your teams run the bank better would this you know, help your organization inside the bank be more effective, be more efficient, and then being able to work directly with them to understand the nuance of the data. You know, the funny little curly bits that you look at when you're going through spreadsheets and CSVs uh, like cannot be understated. Uh, I think that, again, creative push and drive that we have and then being able to have everything set up in the right way that allows us to go really quickly at these things is definitely kind of part of the magic. That's a really interesting point, right? I want to double-click on this and that competing in the AGI Marco and Kareem wrote that. It's terrific. Really lays a good framework for thinking about rethinking the business model and the operational model and the value that's being driven. But what you guys doing here essentially are also taking a look at how do we unbound creativity when we're looking at data-centric processes and how do we test this rapidly and how do we learn from this, right? So this comes up a lot when people are thinking about Look, do we build this internally or do we buy off the shelf stuff? And this layer of creativity actually is really interesting where you might be onto some gold here, but you may have been short-sighted because you've just done something that somebody else does or somebody has something else that's out there that potentially you can leverage. But I think that might be the next element of this as enterprises think about it. You know, how do we take it and spur creativity without letting it go crazy, right? Because that's the other thing is that you have to have some discipline around this. Spot on. And I think, you know, the buy versus build challenge always comes up when we look at problems like this and when we actually get on the tools and start creating things ourselves. And I think one of the most interesting lenses that we apply, particularly even for the IT or stability score, is, is actually how bespoke the processes are. They're incredibly data rich. There's a lot of really valuable information in there. But if they are bespoke and we have crafted them in a way that is unique to our organization, despite the domain being common to literally every single organization that runs technology, it means that taking things off the shelf is really hard because it means you then have to take the thing off the shelf and kind of, you know, mold it into your enterprise. But then us being able to say, okay, we may know that it's imperfect, but it's ours. So... We know how the data works. We have all the SMEs that know how the processes flow and what actually happens at each step of every process and what happens when things go well and things don't, which means that we can feed that knowledge into models that actually allows them to be more effective and attuned to what's actually happening inside the org, which I think is is cool too. Yeah, very cool, very cool. So I think if that is kind of like one bucket of initiatives, an example initiative that, that we've kind of run, I think the second is really something that I think is quite exciting for the financial services industry is our work within the RegTech ecosystem. 
And you know, RegTech as an ecosystem has been around for, for years now, but is really starting to kind of looking to become quite exponential in the way that it is growing just due to the sheer volume of startups that are literally being generated and conceived all over the world. But I think also the investment that is starting to follow them from VC. What is quite exciting about RegTech for us is that yeah, RegTech has the promise of being able to help us digitize our operational risk our compliance and our financial crime processes inside the organization. I think the power of that is that when you start to digitize and automate these processes, it means that A, you can get a lot of really, really rich, strong data you can use to optimize it. But it also means that we can actually drive better customer outcomes. We can drive better risk management outcomes inside the organization and we can drive better compliance outcomes. And so in this school of Technology and these startups are really applying machine learning, advanced data science techniques and software to processes inside financial services enterprises that have never had technology applied to them before. And so, you know, an example of an initiative that we've worked on with a startup that's actually based in Chicago is called Ascent. And what we did with Ascent was, you know, Ascent has built this amazing natural language processing model. It's called Regulation AI. And what Regulation AI does is actually to read and decompose financial services legislation and regulation and pick out in the text all of the different sub-mandates or obligations that financial services organizations need to operate or apply or adhere to within their business and really feed that to you as a, you know, either in their kind of SaaS platform or we actually partnered with the team at IBM to actually work to have a sense platform and model integrated into, you know, a governance risk and compliance system, which means that we could get a live flow of data to help us digitize our kind of regulatory change management processes in kind of a, a pilot or a, or a proof of concept. But I think this idea that instead of having a team of lawyers or a team of consultants sit and read hundreds of thousands of words, legalese and really complex, the idea that we could apply natural language processing to that text, be able to have a feed of information that is all of a sudden very data rich and data centric, and then be able to apply that back inside the organization to run risk management and compliance processes. I think it was a great example of reg tech and the application of machine learning and kind of artificial intelligence to new domains or new areas inside enterprises that have never had this type of technology or this interest before. So I think reg tech, incredibly important portfolio for us, really, really interesting and really cool startups emerging all over the world. We got a question here. Are you using blockchain for this or what's the engine that you're using for this one? So the experiment that we ran was with Ascent. So they are a RegTech and they were a SaaS platform. And so they built this model they call Regulation AI. That's essentially a like natural language processing machine learning model that kind of is able to feed their platform with the data and the obligation and the kind of regulatory data from literally what exists today as PDFs and Word documents. Speaking of blockchain, it's a great segue into the next kind of cool, futuristic, forward-looking applications of tech that we've had. For us, DLT poses a really, really interesting set of opportunities for the bank. And for us, we've been huge supporters of an enterprise-grade distributed ledger technology. And we were one of the founding members of R3, which is the Global Blockchain Consortia. And yeah, since investing in R3 and, and working with them, we've ran a number of 
proof of concepts and, and pilots of their platform in a whole bunch of really different domains. Um, you know, other teams across the organization have also done some amazing work on other kind of more public blockchains, looking at different domains and different product sets. But our interest has really been twofold as a team. First is within trade finance, and the second is actually within identity and identity management. And so the work in trade finance is really attempting to digitize what are horrifically manual processes that exist across the global trade supply chains, literally operate and function a large part of the world's economy. And we're talking about pieces of paper that flow between captains of ships and ports and banks and companies. And it is horrifically antiquated and ripe for digitization and disruption. So one of the first experiments that we ran with R3 was to actually be able to connect kind of an IoT sensor. It was an IoT sensor that looked at humidity inside a shipping container of cotton. We then had a GPS tracker on the side of the ship able to show us geographic location of the ship. And then what we did with the blockchain was really digitize or set the conditions of a letter of credit, which is a very standard antiquated product within the industry, into code and have it running as a smart contract. And we had those two sensors act as like live data feeds and oracles into the contract, which meant that all of a sudden, instead of you know, the ownership of the asset and the, you know, appropriate kind of level of pricing, insurance on that asset, and fundamentally risk on the bank was actually tracked in real time for the first time. So instead of it being like, hey, the cotton's at port A, it belongs to you. When it gets to port B, it belongs to the other person. It's their problem then. All of a sudden, for the first time, literally be able to use data from IoT sensors to actually be able to have a real-time data-driven view of where these assets and where these goods are, and therefore be able to use that data to actually change the conditions in the contract and change the conditions in the products that supported that contract in real-time all through what was essentially a a little kind of dashboard and, and prototype platform. But I think the work with DLT that we've done I think really, again, it is kind of key to us being able to access new sets of data and being able to really encode and embed really complex financial products into code or contracts. We can then use that data that we are now able to access on physical assets or goods or infrastructure and be able to do things with it. So I think if that was the trade finance use case, I think kind of stepping over to the next We did some work with Telstra, who is equivalent of kind of AT&T here locally in Australia. And again, applying that same school of thought, what we actually built with them and we've painted it, which is quite exciting, is a digital escrow service that actually uses really similar techniques, but instead of applying it to global trade and trade finance and, you know, shipping containers and, you know, large infrastructure that moves stuff around, we actually kind of built this really interesting platform for consumers, which is to say that in a world where we're able to have tags that are enabled by 5G or IoT, LoRaWAN and all the low range kind of infrastructure and signals that they process and use, being able to use the data from one of those tags that is attached to a good that a consumer could buy online or from a store, and then being able to say, okay, we're going to have that good be an oracle for a smart contract. We're then going to set up a geofenced location. When that tag enters that location, we're going to, in a smart contract on kind of a, a DLT, we're then going to actually release payment from that consumer 
to the enterprise that has sold them that good in real time. So essentially, you know, attempting to solve some of the more complex trust problems that exist in this kind of hazy world of, we call it delivery versus payment. But the point at which you actually hand over money for the thing that you've bought and then your trust in actually getting it delivered to your door. And so being able to use and apply and mesh literally 5G, IoT, DLT, and then it's called the NPP or the real-time payment system or platform here in Australia. Being able to mesh all of those things together is how we see all of these emerging technologies that are literally coming along in leaps and bounds in their maturity, how we start to see all these things coming together which give us the opportunity to digitize parts of our economy, parts of our business, parts of processes and and operations and systems that we rely on in our day-to-day lives. And not only digitizing it, but then also being able to give us access to data that we've never had before, which allows us to control and configure products, to actively operate in real time. And then thinking about all the things that we could do with those new data, you know, whether it's IoT in farms that allow us to do rescoring on agricultural goods, whether it be, again, real-time conditions for trade finance and as assets move and shift or potentially spoil or go bad, being able to trigger insurance products or being able to move money between open accounts of credit. For us, that mesh is where the magic is in the future and being able to explore and understand how to bring all these different technologies together is really, really a huge kind of opportunity for enterprise more broadly, but for the bank. For us, not only thinking about individual kind of isolated use of things like DLT in and of itself or 5G in and of itself or, again, IoT in and of itself, but when you start to bring these things together and connect it to existing infrastructure that exists today, which allows us to facilitate payments, run products, means that we can actually start to mature these technologies and help people understand how they could be used inside the bank and the amazing things they could potentially do for our customers. These are like really practical experiments you're doing, especially with some of these. Are they kind of geographically bound to where you are, particularly in Sydney or at least in Australia? Or have you done these with, I mean, you've mentioned a few that you've done internationally or at least with companies who are international. But are you still just sort of thinking about your consumer base in Australia or how are you guys thinking about that? And then secondly, in terms of measurement, like when do you know then, okay, this is coming out of the experiment and we're ready to scale this. Like, what are some of the, the KPIs around that that you might be looking through? Yeah, so on the first question, I think around geography, uh, I kind of think about it in two ways. I think first is as a team and as a function that is able to run and partner with other teams and startups or academics or kind of our technology partners. I don't think our geography matters. Our work can be done virtual. And so we work with teams and companies literally all over the world. I think when it comes to kind of our customers, I think, you know, we have a real laser focus on Australia as our core market. And obviously New Zealand is one of our secondary markets. But I think in particular, probably three to four years ago, we had actually established a bank in South Africa. And we use that as actually like a test bed for us being able to experiment with kind of new and emerging technologies and different approaches to our business model. And unfortunately, we've kind of sold that kind of organization now. But at the time, we actually productionized the first kind of application on R3 over in South Africa as an identity management solution that helped to effectively be able to allow like attestation and validation of identity credentials. 
from like South African universities and kind of employers, which meant that all of a sudden we could beat kind of the fake identity and the fraud problems that exist in that market. But at the time, do things over there, put it into production, see how it works, and then you know, have really good data um, and intelligence on whether we want to bring it back is still, I think, a really big untapped opportunity for the organization. And then I think on the second point, Knowing the point at which these things mature and are able to scale is definitely like an art and a science. One of the things I've been quite keen on and interested in is actually starting to think about our own version of the TRL, kind of like the technology readiness level framework that NASA have pioneered and kind of you know, cheekily calling it the ETRL, but being able to use that as a framework to help show the organization in a really simple way where these things are at. Because I think what always interests me and surprises me in, in some of these things is that they're actually here. They aren't five years away. We could actually do a lot of these things if we had the will, the intent, the investment to actually go after them. And so, like, I think in some examples, you know, we have, you know, experimented with a lot of reg techs and even the AI products that we build and we help create really structured thinking around hypotheses throughout kind of the experiments and effectively, when those hypotheses are met, and obviously the business and you know, the executives or the senior leadership are you know, interested in progressing further beyond the experiment is kind of when we know. And sometimes literally you just know, like you'll start the project, it'll be two weeks in out of a 10 week run, and you'll go like, this is it, we're on. And then being able to effectively have you know, the remaining experiment to then work on commercials and all the behind the scenes stuff to help ideally move from kind of pilot or prototyping into production, I think is always exciting. And there's other times when you just go, ah, oh, this isn't going to work, but at least we've tried. We haven't spent all of our time or money on, you know, analyzing research other people have done. Sometimes you have to bring it in to know. If on kind of the time horizons of innovation, you know, if kind of building these AI products and experimenting with reg tech is really in horizon one and looking at things like DLT, IoT, 5G, how they come together, it's kind of horizon two. Then we also get the awesome privilege of actually even going further and going beyond the horizon and looking at technologies like quantum computing. And so we're actually really big supporters of the deep tech kind of scene in Australia. And for us, quantum represents a really interesting set of problems and a really interesting set of opportunities in that when the first full stack quantum computer comes online that is able to run software or algorithms, it'll be able to help us in ways that we literally still cannot conceive how it can help us. But it can also do things that can harm us, like breaking every form of modern encryption that we have, which means that all of our cybersecurity controls in every enterprise break. And so for us, being able to help shape the future direction of quantum, then also for us being able to learn and understand and do really, really deep research in areas like cybersecurity and the impact quantum will have on it or alternatively on machine learning, which is where most of the recent research we've helped kind of fund has been, and Quantum's ability to help us accelerate the process of training advanced machine learning models or neural nets is, again, huge opportunity for the organization. But to do that, what we did, which is quite unique, is actually partner with the University of New South Wales, who have this amazing center for quantum communication and computation that's run by Professor Michelle Simmons, who's a former Australian of the Year and just an amazing researcher. And we've been supporters of Michelle's research. And to take 
Michelle's research to the next level, what we have done is work with kind of our state government, our federal government, and then Telstra, who is Australia's largest telco. What we've actually done is create a startup, and it's Australia's first quantum computing hardware startup. And its purpose is to build the foundational hardware for quantum computing. And Michelle's approach and her team's technique is all focused on, obviously, silicon as kind of the core foundation of the hardware and of the platform. And so we do a lot of really interesting work with Michelle and the team at Silicon Quantum Computing Company to not only, again, help us understand what will happen when quantum computing comes online, the risks that it poses and the opportunities and the benefits that it has, but then also, I think, being able to help educate people on the potential of quantum and actually helping to educate kids in particular to get into careers in STEM because literally, you know, the talent pipeline for quantum is literally still in high school and even potentially before that in primary school or elementary school for you guys. And so it's kind of like being able to inspire them to get into careers in technology, engineering, mathematics and science so that when Michelle and her team actually start to bring, you know, the hardware online, we actually have a workforce that is able to partner with us and work really closely with us to help apply quantum inside the bank. So I think that is all the content I had. I hope it was interesting, useful, sparked some thinking. I selfishly think I have the best job in the bank. It gets to look at literally <laughs> like stuff that's 10 years away. You <laughs> uh, yeah, stuff that's 10 years away and helping to think about and helping the organization understand what impact it could have all the way through to literally getting on the tools and helping to build machine learning models and everything in between. Jesse, if you wouldn't mind, we'll maybe just take some live questions here. Let's all use the raise hand function, the blue hand, and... Uh, don't be um, shy. I don't bite. Abhishek has a question, so we'll go to him. Thank you, Jun. Hi. Jesse, we certainly envy you your job. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> role, like you were saying towards the end. So it's it's great to be look, able to look at all these different technologies and apply it to your bank, right? So one, one quick question from my side. Overall, top of the house, is there kind of a limit on the spend that you do on technology, right? Like if we want to sell an initiative, you obviously come up against a cap probably at some point saying that we are already spending so much and how do you prioritize and uh, put that into a pipeline? Like what do you think is a good benchmark from what you've seen in, in your career? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. I think as a organization, we have publicly committed to spending $5 billion over the next five years on technology, digital, ensure that we kind of retain our leadership position and advantage in the market. I think for us as a team, we have our own dedicated innovation funding that I probably can't talk about publicly um, in terms of its size, but it certainly isn't a billion dollars a year. And for us, kind of initiatives range from at times you can actually do things very, very quickly for not a lot amount of money. And there's other times where delivery will take months and you'll need to bring in specialist teams and resources that will cost in, you know, hundreds of thousands to actually do. So it depends on the initiative. I think for us, we aren't usually ever guided as a metric on how much we spend or, or what we're doing with our money. The two kind of key top of house metrics that I'm measured on by kind of our leadership team is on the number of experiments that we run and then on the percentage of experiments that are embedded inside the organization. And so my target is to run 30 experiments a year and then to have 17% embedded each and every year. Great. Thank you. Great question. Okay. Um, 
Jenny, we had one more. You you said you spotted one. Maybe we'll do that. I know. I'm looking for a good one. One of the items was basically taking a look at the presented process. So the, the process that you laid out, Jesse, how does it deviate from a more traditional stage gate process of innovation? And what are some issues that might come up using this different process that you've put together? Yeah, so I think for us, we typically don't stage gate funding for our team, our portfolio. What we actually do is obviously we'll have approvals up into the lead up to the initiative. And then depending on the partner we'll work with, we will release funding to them based on milestones if we are working with a partner and, and that is the agreement. But the process that was kind of articulated and outlined, I don't think is particularly new, but I think what it is, is that it for the first time has been standardized. And for anybody who's had the, the privilege and the fun of working with a standards organization, it's this huge game of consensus. And so, you know, in ISO TC 279 that is helping to literally create the standards for innovation management, you get global representation of governments, of enterprise, of startup, of academia all together that helps to author the standards. And then for the innovation management standards, there is literally 41 countries participating. Each of them then go to their equivalent bodies and then have to gain consensus on the language and approval and endorsement after all those people have consulted all of their organizations and all of their member groups. And then it all comes back up. So I think the process is actually one of the first consensus views of how innovation management should be structured as a business management system. And if you look at ISO 56002 and all of the other 56000, 56003, there is literally standard definitions for innovation as a practice, standard process steps for innovation as a field. But then the way that you obviously internalize that as an enterprise is entirely up to you. So there are elements that are standard that are literally now defined, which I think is great because it means that we can start to, instead of everybody having slightly their own framework, means that we can all start to use common language and common definitions to help talk about the same thing that we've always been talking about. So for me, the process isn't new. I think what is interesting for us is the way that we have operationalized the process is actually through our innovation management platform. So it's scaffolded, which means we get really good data. Everybody can see everything we're doing. Great. Yeah, a lot of transparency there too. Yeah. Jesse, thank you. It's been fabulous. I've wanted to do this for some time. So thank you for giving us the time. I know it was very early in the morning for you. Uh, again, everybody, thanks again. Thanks for the great questions and the participation. Just keep plugging away. Again, we do this series once a month with different guests. We also have a different team that hosts as well. We will be back on May 12th, so please subscribe to that, register now, and we'll be looking forward to seeing you. Jesse, again, thanks again. We appreciate your time. It's been great. No worries. Thank you for having us, and thanks, everybody, for dialing in. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of AI in Enterprise. To subscribe to our newsletter, find out about upcoming events, and other updates about the Lab for Innovation Science at Harvard, please visit our website at lish.harvard.edu. That's L-I-S-H dot Harvard dot E-D-U.